Uh, the title of this message is Upside Down. And uh, as I was preparing this, I thought this is actually a perfect third part of a series. Over months and months, I've preached twice on perspective. So I'm calling this Perspective Part 3. And we're going to talk about how Jesus turns things upside down. And uh, as I was getting ready, I was thinking about, uh, did anybody know what inversion boots are from back from the 70s? So here's a picture if you've never seen it. So that you, str- you strap these on your ankles, right? And then you hang from a chin-up bar, and you exercise that way. Sit-ups and all kinds of craziness. And uh, actually, when Richard Gere was young and buff, he's the one in the movie American Gigolo. He popularized this thing. (laughs) And so it took off as a crazy fad for a while. I remember I tried it back then once. I'm not going to tell you what it did to my head. It's nuts. And then for a while, the United States Army actually thought this was a great idea. So this is how they were training out there. So this is just a secret between you and me because I don't think you can document this anywhere. But I'm convinced when you were doing this, all the toxins in your body go to your brain. So today, all the people that spent hours and hours doing that back in the 70s are now running our government. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> cheap shot, I'm sorry. Here's, here's what I want to say. When we get into this story, here's my point. The Pharisees in this story spent way too much time looking at God upside down. And what's going to happen is Jesus is going to confront them, and he's going to put it right side up. And what I want to say to you is, I've been there, and I'm going to talk about myself a little bit later in this message, but I was at least 20 years into being a lead pastor and preaching every week before I suddenly had a shift, not suddenly, it would gradually had a shift in perspective that helped me to see that at least on one very important point, I didn't understand God as well as I thought I did. I understand the Bible as well as I thought I did. And if you're here this morning, you think you got God figured out, you think you got the Bible figured out, you think you got church figured out, I hope you'll give Jesus a few minutes to do heart surgery on you and allow him to speak into you because there may be some things you're convinced you're absolutely right on and you couldn't be farther from the truth. This story, I think, is going to expose some of that. So let's go to this. Let me just talk about perspective for a moment because I'm seeing this as part of a series perspective, I'm convinced, is hard to get and easy to lose. It's like cupping your hands and trying to hold water. It just slips through your fingers. You know, you got a nice big handful, and a moment later, most of it's gone. Perspective is like that for us. But I'm also convinced one of the greatest gifts you can give to anyone is the gift of words that results in a transforming shift of perspective. It's amazing. And sometimes it happens in a flash. It's the right word at the right moment that suddenly creates a new level of understanding. And what you thought was so true suddenly is obviously not true at all. That's what we're going to see here. Jesus was a master of perspective. I believe if he did anything on this planet, in addition to purchasing our salvation on the cross, it was that he brought heaven's perspective to earth. The biblical word for perspective is wisdom, which is seeing things through God's eyes. 
I'm praying. Let's just take a moment. Holy Spirit, help us this morning to have eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, and a heart to understand and grasp it. Let's take a look at the story. Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, and some translations will say it's the same night that this event took place, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? New Living Translation, instead of sinners, it says, why does he eat with such scum? All right? Message translation right there says, um, crooks and riffraff. So, I mean, you're getting the picture, right? On hearing this, apparently Jesus overheard that conversation. Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous. What he's implying is those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Incredible story. I, I want to talk to you about four ways Jesus turns things upside down. And I'm convinced that anybody who gives them a chance will experience a complete shift in perspective in their life. Number one, Jesus turned Matthew's world upside down, and he did it in a big, big way. Let's look at verse 9 again. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matt, and Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. For some people, part of the magic of the story is they see this all happening in just an instant, like it was one day Matthew had never seen Jesus before. Jesus had never seen Matthew before. He just happened to be going and kind of turned and said, oh, by the way, follow me. I, I, a lot of scholars don't see it that way, and I don't. Remember, John said, if you were to write down everything that Jesus did, there's not enough room on the planet to hold all the volumes. So we need to assume that there's a little more information. Matthew didn't take time to write into these verses. My personal opinion is I think Jesus and Matthew have kind of at least caught each other's eye over some period of time. This is chapter 9. Jesus has already called several of his disciples. He allows some time to pass. I think Matthew needed a while. And what happens in between some of those earlier callings, Peter, James, and John, and the such, and Matthew, is that Jesus is out there preaching. He's doing miracles. I can envision Matthew kind of first on the periphery of the crowds, just kind of curious like so many thousands of others, just sort of observing what's going on, and then maybe moving in a little closer to see if his eyes were really telling him what he thought he was seeing and getting a look. Jesus, I think, probably observed Matthew and realized there's something going on. I think, I think the real story here is not that this all happened in a few minutes' time, but that Jesus was able to look at a guy who was living a very shameful life and see something in him that nobody else could see. Jesus saw a devoted follower in this guy who was in the riffraff among the crooks of society, the despised of the society. Jesus saw something in him. He knew that this was a man who could have a heart after God. He knew that this, had, this guy had the potential to be a world changer. And he called him to that position. 
And I love Matthew's response. He got up and followed. I, I don't know if it's possible to overstate the change that this meant for Matthew. Tax collector does, doesn't mean what it did in that society, but remember Israel at that time was under Roman rule, and uh, the way the Romans collected taxes, and their taxes were steep, the way they did it was they would take, they, they would take from the national population people who would bid for the position. And it went to the highest bidder. So they had sort of a set amount that you had to collect. And anything you, you could get over and above that, you kept. I mean, no, there, were, there was little accountability. And so you had Israel, Israelites taking, they, I mean, they were viewed as traitors against their own people in the way that they did this. And, and it was unconscionable in so many ways for them to do it. And Matthew slipped into that greedy trap and he just destined himself to live out his life that way. There are few people that would associate with people like that. They were hated among their, their own. And, and the fact that he's got this tax collector's booth tells us something else because, I mean, his, history reveals that what happened was there was a main route of commercialized traffic that went right down along the Sea of Galilee, close to Capernaum, where this story took place, and Matthew, he was actually somewhat of a customs official as well. So he had all this traffic of, of goods going from the Far East down to Egypt and then back. They would unload there, restock, and take Egyptian goods back to the Far East. They traveled right down that route. So uh, Matthew was strategically placed. I'm sure the Romans wanted him to be there. He would stop the caravans, and he would tax them according to what they were carrying. In fact, all commerce was taxed at that tax booth. So you, you have to imagine that Peter, James, and John knew this guy well. They were commercial fishermen, and fishermen were taxed like everybody else that ran some kind of a business. So I can imagine the day Jesus said to Matthew, come follow me, and Peter, James, and John are already following Jesus and going, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, they must have been dumbfounded. Matthew was not an obscure guy. Everybody, he was the one everybody loved to hate, right? He was in that position, and he deserved it, and he knew that he deserved it. And he, you, you know, if you leave fishing, you can go back to fishing. You leave being a tax collector, you never go back. It's like leaving the mafia. You just, I mean, you are not welcome back. When Matthew made that choice, his whole life changed in a moment. You can hardly imagine what really took place for him. What I, what I love about this is that we see in Jesus a deliberate decision to choose his followers, not from among the social and religious elite, as everyone expected, but from among the dregs of society which Matthew was surely considered. I kind of got some of the thoughts for this message from Philip Yancey. I love him, a great writer. Here's, a, here's an awesome quote from Yancey. Among the lowly, the wretched, the downtrodden, the rejected of this world, God's kingdom takes root. I'm so glad. I mean, somebody called, called his disciples a motley crew, and, and they seriously were that, just like us, right? 
I mean, you could say that of, of coastline in so many ways. Well, the, God chose us from so many different things, and you look around and you say how unlikely it is, and yet I hear story after story that moves me deep of changed lives sitting in this room right now because of an encounter with Jesus Christ. That's where God's kingdom takes root in so much. So if you're ready to give up on yourself, meet Jesus because he might have a plan for you today. When Jason and I were talking about the possibility of me coming on staff here um, two and a half years ago now, uh, we spent a few months just phone conversations. Joan and I made a trip down, and then I came back a second time, and and we were in this uh, extended process of just trying to get to know each other because it was a big move for both of us to do it. But I remember a phone call, Jason, when you said to me, it was, it was time to make a decision. We had gone through a long process, and you said to me, do you have any more questions? And my response was, I got a lot more questions, but I can't think of a single question that would change my decision right now. And you said, I feel the same way. And we made a decision that day. He offered an invitation, and I said yes in that phone call. And that reminds me of what Matthew and Jesus were going through right here. It's like, I'm sure Matthew had a ton of questions. But when Jesus said, like, well, what's the terms here? How's this going to work out? You know, what's it going to mean for my family, my job? And it must have been a thousand questions, but not a single one that would have changed his response. He found all that out later. But in that moment, he just walked away. And he followed Jesus from that moment on. Just one more thought about this. In the Synoptic Gospels, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story is told. Mark and Luke refer to him not as Matthew, but as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. It's almost like they're providing a little bit of a cover for their friend. But Matthew, in writing about himself, owns it. He calls himself Matthew in black and white, in print. He, he, he goes there. It's like he's saying, that was me before Jesus. I was that guy, and I deserved to be despised and hated by so many. But I just want you to know the difference he made in my life. Jesus turned Matthew's world upside down. Let's look at the second one. And that is that Jesus turned the religious value system upside down as he's doing this. Uh, verses 10 and 11 really helped to illustrate this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, I don't know if they were invited or if they just barged in, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? And so you, could almost, you could almost read that phrase as sinful tax collectors because that's just the way they were always thought of. They're sinful tax collectors, along with all these other sinful people that are out there in the world, but you couldn't, you couldn't separate tax collector and sinner in their mind or even in a sentence that they would speak. It was all one and the same. And there was a reason for that. It was because of the religious value system. This is going to be the most painful thing I'm going to say today, but... I have to be honest with you. I'm going to give you permission when you see the word Pharisees in the Scripture to think of me. The old me, I hope. The way I used to be. Before that transforming shift in perspective when I suddenly saw who I really was 
um, at least some portion of my heart. And I just have to tell you this. It's not that hard to get there, though we tend to hate the Pharisees in the Scriptures. Let me tell you how it happens. It happens to people who are well-intended but misguided. It happens to people who want to be good. I grew up a good kid. I was raised in church, Sunday school, all of that kind of stuff. Um, my parents were, I, I never gave them a real hard time. I behaved myself for the most part. I had a p- period of time in junior high school when I drove some of my teachers crazy because I had a personality change and I had, had to show off. I'll never forget the time I made a, a, a paper airplane out of a newspaper. In social studies class, I was sitting in the back row and I flew that sucker from the back row. I waited till the teacher turned around. She was writing on the chalkboard, and I flew that thing, and it crashed into the board right by her head. It was hilarious. But it was painful for me. Uh, But I did stuff like that. My science teacher one day hit me, literally hit me upside the head with a chalk eraser. You know those nasty things? Filled my ear with chalk dust because I'd irritated her, but that's about as bad as it got for me. And uh, right, <laughs> right, out of, uh, right out of high school, I went to Bible college and prepared for ministry, and I spent a lot of years of my life, thousands of hours studying the Bible. I know the Bible pretty good because I've spent so much time with it. And I, I wanted to understand it, and I, I, I wanted to live it out. I wanted to model what I was saying to my kids and to the churches, the people that I was leading in ministry. My intentions were good, but it's a slippery slope, and I'll tell you why. Because I got to the point that these guys were at where I became self-righteous. I looked down I'm ashamed to say it. I look down on people that I didn't live up to my standards of what holiness is all about. And I, I wouldn't typically mean to people, but I would distance myself. That's the way I dealt with it. And I had to confess to our, uh, my men's fraternity small group in one of our conversations that I, I remember times when I withheld affection from my own kids because, because I, their behaviors didn't match my expectations. I can't even tell you how I regret that. I'd give anything to have those years back and do that over again. Stupidest thing. I thought I was right. But in the process, I became judgmental and self-righteous. These guys, in a lot of ways, were the best people in the society. They were the rule keepers. They never stepped out of land. They literally had a list of 613 rules that they followed based on scriptures and, and principles from the Old Testament. And it's like, a, it's like a checklist where every day they had to live up to the 613 things and nobody can do it, so they started faking it, making people think they were doing it when they knew in their own hearts that they weren't, and that's why Jesus called them hypocrites because they pretended to be something. That's what a Pharisee is. A lot of Pharisees became Christ followers when he started preaching and teaching because the lights came on for them, and there was a spark of something right in their heart that suddenly created that transforming shift in perspective, and they started following Jesus. But some opposed him, as in this story. That's how it happened. Let me lighten up the thing. It's not, it's not that hard to, uh, to sort of get uh, misperceptions of what the church is all about, what religion is all about, right? 
So when I was pastoring in Fairfax, Virginia, which is just outside of Washington, D.C., um, I needed an administrative assistant. And uh, for reasons we won't go into right here, I couldn't hire anybody in the church. So I, I was going to go outside, and I had this brilliant idea, I thought, to advertise in the Washington Post, the position. No. Uh, let me tell you how that worked out. I got uh, I th- somewhere in, the, I think, 130-some uh, responses to that ad, like on the first day. It just it was unbelievable. 100% of the candidates were unqualified for the position. I mean, I took time. I went through them. I read it. I responded to all of them. And I'll never put myself through that again. It was, it was awful. But here's the fun part. I asked three questions to kind of do the first level of screening to, to find out. And uh, one of them turned out to be a brilliant question. Why do you want to work for a church? And the responses were amazing. But the predominant response was, I just think it would be wonderful to work in a peaceful, quiet, serene, loving environment where there's never any problems. (laughs) And I'm going, you don't want to work here. (laughs) This is not the, yeah, I'd love that too, but it's not here. Uh, You have no idea (laughs) what you're signing up for. Oh, my word. But. We get, we get misperceptions of things, and the Pharisees had gotten to that point where they had these ideas about God and about Scripture and about holiness that were completely off track, and they didn't even realize it. Let me give you a, a couple more examples of this from the book of Luke, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses of a much longer story just to make the point. Luke 7, 36 and 37, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner, this is interesting because now it's not the sinful, the riffraff that's inviting Jesus to dinner. It's the Pharisee who's inviting Jesus to dinner. So let's see what happens. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. That sounds just like we did at Matthew's house. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, and literally, if you look at that, she, most likely she, she was a prostitute, a well-known prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So let me just quickly tell uh, the story rather than reading all 50 verses of this or whatever, whatever it is. So what happens is this guy is, is there, this Pharisee, and, and he's thinking, if he was really who he claims to be, you know, like divine in some way or even a, a good prophet, surely he would have the insight to know who this woman is. And the fact that he's not shooing her away, that he's allowing her to do what she's doing, means that he cannot possibly be anywhere close to God. So a complete misconception of what's going on. And Jesus finally reads the man's mind and responds to him and says, listen, uh, Simon, let me, let me ask a question. First, let me tell you a story. There's two guys, and uh, this wealthy man decides to make a loan to both of them. To one, he gave 500 pieces of silver, so 500 denarii, which was a denarii was a day's wage there. And to the second one, he gave 50. And later on, neither one of them were able to repay the debt. 
And so this good-hearted man just decided to forgive the debt and just tell him, listen, you don't owe me anything. It's, we're all good. Simon, which of those two guys do you think loved his benefactor the most? And Simon sort of reluctantly says, well, I, I suppose the one that had the biggest debt uh, forgiven. Jesus said, you're exactly right. So he said, let me play this out for you. When I walked in the door of your house at your invitation, you didn't even offer me water to wash the dust off my feet from travel. It was a common thing to do. He said, this woman, you watched her. She literally washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. He said, Simon, one other thing. He said, "Um, when I came in the door of your house, it's customary, as you know, to give a greeting, a kiss on the cheek. You didn't give me that greeting. This woman hasn't stopped kissing my dusty feet. And he said, and then there's that thing about the few drops of oil that you put on the head of a guest as a way of honoring them. He said, you didn't do that for me. But this woman broke out the most expensive perfume possible, and she's just anointing my feet with the perfume. You know why? Because she's a sinner, a bad sinner, and she is forgiven all of that. Which position do you want to be in? I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question, don't we? Which position do you want to be? Do you want to be that guy that everybody thinks is the good person in the room, the best neighbor on the block, or are you willing to humble yourself and say, I'm no better than anybody else. In fact, I'm worse than most. And if anybody needs God's help and his forgiveness, it's me. He just turned religious values upside down. Kim, I'm going to move on. Let's skip to the third point. Jesus turned the Pharisees' definition of sinner upside down. And I love this. I love it. Matthew 9, 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The definition of sinner in the Pharisees' mind, these Pharisees' minds, were that you broke the religious rules. The definition of sinner in Jesus' mind was you're desperately sick and you need somebody to heal you because you cannot heal yourself. A few years ago, in fact, if you look real close, I got a thin scar from my left eye down over my cheek because I went to my dermatologist one day and he said, you got to after looking at me and examining, he said, you got a basal cell carcinoma. It's a skin cancer. He said, it's 100% curable, and uh, I can take care of it today. If you don't do anything about it, your life is at risk. But if you're willing to let me take care of this, you're going to be fine. You'll never have to worry about this again. He said, the deal is i got to go deep to make sure I get the roots of that out because I don't want to leave any of it there. And so I said, fine. Next day I went to the office, and people thought I was in a car wreck the day before or something. It's not real pretty. But uh, I had a sense of confidence. Well, I'm glad we caught that, and, and we took care of it. And that's kind of the way it is with sin. Sin is 100% curable if you're willing to undergo the surgery to get there because it's like, it's like a, a spiritual cancer of the soul. It's, it's like this thing has got a grip on your heart, and the deal is you cannot cure yourself of sin. That's, that's the definition that Jesus is rewriting here. To the Pharisees, the cure was you just go and you behave yourself. You, 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 you fulfill the rules. To Jesus, like, ridiculous. 
Not only does he not only does he cut the cancer out of our heart, he cuts the heart out and gives us a new heart in its place so that the old is gone. The Scripture is very clear about that. God said, I'm going to take that old heart out of you, and I'm going to put a new heart in its place. And it's so transforming that you'll never be the same once Jesus does that to you. That's the new definition of sin through Jesus. He, he totally rewrote that thing so that from that day on, people would know that sin was not just you chose to do something bad the day before, but it was a condition of the heart that all of us are helpless to do anything about. And while these guys are, are finger-pointing, calling people sinners, there's a sinner, there's a sinner, there's a sinner, Paul in Romans, who was, a, may I remind you, a Pharisee of the Pharisees by his own words, said, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, that's the conclusion he finally came to. We're all guilty. There isn't anybody that can point at anybody else, and that's exactly what Jesus was saying here. You think, you think you've got this figured out, but you're so far off track, and unless you submit yourself to the great physician who's able to heal, I mean, you, you, when you hear the phrase, salvation is the greatest miracle of all, that's not just a cliche, and it is not an overstatement. It is the absolute truth because it amounts literally to a spiritual heart transplant. It changes you from that day on. Jesus redefined the word sinner. And I want to go to the fourth point, which is that uh, Jesus turned their understanding of God upside down, which is really kind of the biggie of this whole thing, Matthew 9.13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, Eric, here, this is for you. This is the obscure Old Testament passage you've been waiting for. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And here's the full verse from Hosea. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. If you take the time to go and read the first five verses of that chapter, Hosea 6, or even back up a chapter or two, you'll find out this is pretty, I mean, he skinned them alive with this. The, the words in Hosea are so harsh, I didn't even want to put them on the screen this morning. They make you cringe. when you, Because he talks, he talks about, he said it used to be the crooks that would murder and rob people in broad daylight on the street corners, but now it's the priests doing it to their own parishioners. And he talks about the, the, the religion of that day was so syncretized, the worship of Baal, the foreign god, with the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, that they came to the point they were so confused they didn't know the difference. They thought literally that participating in a drunken orgy with temple prostitutes was an act of worship. And Hosea is going after them and saying, you're so confused about God and who he is and what he wants. And Jesus, in, in, in a rather polite way, is saying to them, it wasn't just about they didn't understand that one verse. They didn't understand God. He said, let me give you one example of that. Like, go, go study the Scriptures. And they probably thought, oh, my word, we've been studying the Scriptures. We know backwards and forward. They knew all about Isaiah. They knew what they had studied these verses. So when Jesus says to them, go learn what the Bible has to say, what the Scriptures have to say, they were insulted by that. But what he's really saying is, you don't get it at all. 
You just don't get it. You don't understand God. You don't understand his ways. You don't understand he wants. He doesn't want more religious activities. He wants your heart. He wants you. He wants your love. He wants you to embrace him. He wants you to allow him to make you in what he designed you to be from the very beginning. He wants to change you from the inside out. Huge shift in perspective. Let me just wrap up with this this morning. If you're sitting here and you think God hates you, you need to change your perspective because that's not true. If you think Jesus would never be interested in you or your future, you got it wrong. Like Matthew, I love what, uh, what Rick Warren says, God's more interested in your future than it is your past. He, he can see past the past, and he can see into the interior of your soul, and he knows the potential that's there, and he's ready to take you on a journey if you'll allow him to do it. If you're here and, and, and your whole view of church is, is what's been uh, presented by skewed perspective of other people. Maybe they even call themselves Christians. Take a look at what Jesus has to say because that's what it's really all about. We're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? I, when, when Jesus walked down that road and he called Matthew by name and said, follow me, I kind of picture him still doing that today. And there, there may be people here this morning who can almost hear the Lord calling your name and saying, follow me. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. I'd love to pray with you. And I just want to ask you to slip up your hand and say, I want to accept Christ as my Savior. I want to follow him from this. Thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else? You know Jesus. Thank you. I see your hand. You know Jesus is speaking to you and calling you this morning. Is there anyone else? I'd love to include you in this prayer as we close this morning. Jesus has a future for you that you cannot imagine. And it starts right now in this moment with a change of heart. Let's pray together. And can I just say this? It's not my prayer that has any magical words that saves you. God's looking at your heart, and he knows what you're thinking and how you're praying in your own heart, and that's what really is going to get the job done this morning. But let me lead. Lord, this morning, thank you for calling us. Thank you for opening our eyes and our hearts to something new. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to see something better than what we knew before. And thank you for seeing value in us that we couldn't even see in ourselves. And Lord, this morning, I pray for those that are opening their heart to you, recognizing you as Savior, as the one who lived a perfect life and died a death, a sacrificial death, rose from the grave and calls us today to something high and holy. Lord, we embrace you as Lord and Savior. Receive that work of transformation deep inside that you're, you're willing to give us. And Lord, I pray that you would just do something today that would change everything about the future of those that are reaching out to you. We praise you for that and we thank you for your awesome work in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you raise your hand, thank you. Let me just say this.